Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. I know that listeners who have been with me for a while now know that an episode is going to be different when I dispense with the music at the beginning. I think the last time I did this was six months ago when I announced I was taking a break from the show. Have no fear, I'm not going anywhere. I just did it today to indicate that this is not a normal show because these are not normal times. I'm recording this on March 15th, 2020, four days after the World Health Organization declared that the coronavirus outbreak is a pandemic, which means it's dispersed across a very wide geographic area and it affects many individuals at the same time. Many, many things have been cancelled in the last few days. Most schools are cancelled for at least the next few weeks. Big events are cancelled or postponed, and we're being advised to practice social distancing by remaining six feet apart from other people. And this all seems really big and super stressful, and I'm not going to go into the details of much of the epidemiological information, because frankly that isn't my specialty, but I also know that a lot of you are struggling with issues that do very much fall into my wheelhouse. Things like, what on earth am I going to do with my kids for the next six weeks when we usually start to get on each other's nerves on day six of a vacation? And will my child get behind on schoolwork? And how am I still going to get my own work work done so I can get paid and keep us afloat while we're cooped up in this tiny space? So in this episode, I'm going to cover two main things. Firstly, resources for you, because you may well be feeling quite anxious and approaching the end of your rope already and unsure how you're going to make it through the coming weeks. And then we'll talk about issues that affect your children while we're going through this and how to answer your children's questions about the virus and how to be thoughtful about screen time when it seems like there's nothing else to do and how to also support their learning while they're out of school. And because I know that some of you are really stressed out about this, I also want to let you know about a free one-week workshop that I'm running starting on March 23rd. And it draws together elements of many of the paid workshops and memberships that I've built over the last few years into resources that you can use right now. So, for example, I'm in the middle of hosting a workshop on taming your triggers where we spend weeks digging into the many sources of your triggers because we often find that if we understand those better, it creates space for us to choose a different reaction. But right now, we know the sources of our triggers. For many of us, it's our anxiety about the virus and about being cooped up with our kids, whom we love and cherish and enjoy, but just not all day, every day. (laughs) So we'll go right to the strategies that you can put into place immediately to feel less triggered by the situation, which will allow you to respond more effectively to your child when they're acting out. We'll also cover similar immediately implementable strategies to cope with sibling fighting in a way that gives your children tools to solve their own problems and ways to keep children busy so that you can get things done and also how to use their own interests as a jumping off point for real learning that isn't based on worksheets or spelling drills or math problems for when you do have focused time with them. So if all that sounds like something that you could use, just head on over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash coronavirus and sign up. You just have to enter your name and your email address and you're in. There's no charge whatsoever. So if you know of other parents among your friends, family, colleagues, online networks and groups, anywhere basically you can think of that somebody could benefit from this, then please do feel free to forward the yourparentingmojo.com forward slash coronavirus page. So the workshop gets started on March 24th, and as a bonus, as soon as you sign up, I'll send you a sample daily routine that you can use to bring a sense of order to the few days that we have until we get started. 
Now, I don't think you necessarily need a formal schedule, and you may do just fine even without the parameters of a loose routine. But since many of our children will be coming from the highly routinized worlds of daycare and school, they may find that the structure gives them a sense of security when so much around them might feel uncertain. So that routine should carry you through the days when all this is still kind of new and being out of daycare and school is somewhat exciting. And then when you're starting to get on each other's nerves and you're wondering how you're going to do this for the foreseeable future, I'll be standing right alongside you with tools to help. So if you'd like to download that sample schedule and sign up for the workshop, just go to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash coronavirus. As a reminder, it's completely free, so please do share it with anyone that you think might benefit. Okay, so on to our topic for today, and in the spirit of putting your own oxygen mask on first before helping others with theirs, let's start with you. I know a lot of you are really anxious about what's happening in the world at the moment, and so I want to be really specific about our language here and define our terms. So I'm going to walk through the difference between fear, worry, anxiety, and panic, and talk about how those impact you differently as well. So when we're thinking about fear, then that's a response to a known or definite threat. So if we're hiking in the woods and we see a bear, fear is a normal response. Our bodies use fear to trigger us to do something productive, which is usually fight or flight, or sometimes the freeze response, which can mean playing physically or emotionally dead. For many of us, we're fortunate that in the situation we're in with the virus, objectively speaking, there really isn't a lot to fear. If we're healthy and our children are healthy and the elderly people we know are staying home and staying away from people who might have been infected, then there probably really isn't a lot to have actual fear about. Yes, there's still a possibility that we might catch the virus and we'll probably feel crappy for a couple of weeks, but the transmission rate in children seems to be very low and the fatality rate in healthy adults and children is very, very low. So we probably directly won't be too severely impacted. But if we think about sort of beyond our immediate family fortunate circumstances, then there's actually quite a lot of reason to be afraid. If our elderly relatives can't be completely isolated, or if we or our family members are immunocompromised, or if we care about people who are forced to live in close quarters like a prison, or who are homeless and lack access to basic sanitation practices that we're able to take for granted, or if we're working on the front lines in hospitals, then that fear suddenly seems very rational because there is a threat. The threat is here and it's happening now. And when we feel fear for an extended period of time, which, you know, sort of longer than it takes to run away from a bear, we often start to worry. And worrying is defined by being exact. We're not generally worried about things in, in general. We're worried about something specific. We're worried that we're going to catch the virus and pass it to others. We're worried that our vulnerable friends and relatives are going to be seriously ill or they might die. In many cases in regular life, worry is actually adaptive, which means it's useful. It tells us it's something we need to focus on and maybe shift our approach. The problem here, of course, is that many of us are already doing the things we've been told to do to reduce the transmission of the virus. But if there are things that we simply can't do, like not going to work if we're a nurse and we're not sick, or completely protecting our parents who are in ill health, then it's much more difficult to reduce worry by changing our approach. When we can't reduce our worries, they may become generalized into anxiety, which is a diffuse, unpleasant, vague sense of apprehension. It's possible that you might not even be able to say what's making you anxious. Yes, you're anxious about the virus, but even after you've rationally told yourself about the relatively low risks to most people, you might still feel anxious and not really be able to fully explain why. We don't often feel worry in our bodies physically, but we feel anxiety. 
And the official diagnosis for anxiety requires three or more of the following six symptoms to be present. And these are restlessness or feeling on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating, irritability, muscle tension, and sleep disturbance. These reactions aren't going to help you cope with any specific threat, so they're maladaptive. And a good test to tell if you're worrying or not is um, to tell a friend about your thoughts. So if they can understand you and say, yeah, I, I get it, I, I, I would worry about that too, even if they're not actually worrying right now, then you are worrying. Um, but if they say that just makes no sense, or if you already know yourself that it makes no sense, then that's probably anxiety. So worry might make us nervous, but anxiety makes us afraid. It feels beyond our control, and it changes our ability to function in life for a substantial period of time. The diagnostic, diagnostic criteria say six months on this, although I'm guessing that in acute situations like this, the six-month criteria may not be as relevant. So a panic attack is like an acute onset of anxiety. So instead of having ongoing low to moderate intensity physical symptoms and a generalized sense of apprehension, the official diagnosis of a panic attack is defined as periods of intense fear or discomfort in which at least four of the following 13 symptoms develop quickly, reaching a peak within 10 minutes. So the 13 symptoms are pounding heartbeat, sweating, trembling or shaking, shortness of breath, feeling of choking, chest pain, nausea, feeling dizzy or faint, derealization, which means you have altered perceptions about yourself and or your environment, fear of losing control or going crazy, numbness or tingling, and chills or hot flushes. If you're already anxious, then it's possible you might experience the symptoms of a panic attack if you're in a public place where people are coughing and sneezing, especially if that place is your work so you can't escape from it. And when we're experiencing these things, one of the things we're probably also worrying about is the impact that our experience is having on our children. Some children aren't terribly perceptive and might not notice that something's wrong, while others will be sensitive to every shift in your mood. Either way, many of them will notice if your symptoms cause you to snap at them or lash out at them. And of course, it's hard enough to be patient with your children when you're cooped up with them in a small space, even if you weren't experiencing fear, worrying, anxiety, or maybe even panic attacks yourself, along with all the uncertainty that comes with the constant change in status of what's open and whether we're still going to have a job in six weeks and if our city is going to be put on lockdown. So what can we do? Well, if we think about what helps us to feel less afraid, worried, and anxious, it's usually not that somebody tells us, don't worry, that thing you're thinking about is never going to happen. Uh, these aren't rational responses in us, so they often don't respond well to rational logic. It's far more powerful to reach out to a friend, <laughs> probably by a phone, and say, hey, I'm really worried. Can I talk with you about it? And hopefully, if your friend is a good listener, they'll empathize with your feelings and your experience first and connect with you as a human being to show you they care about you before letting you know whether or not you're being irrational. And if they're worried too, hopefully you can do the same thing for them. When we are ready for some rational information, we can try and understand what is the real risk to ourselves and our family. It can be really hard to see countries on lockdown and not think that this virus is coming to get us personally. And while the risk to the community is very large, the personal risk to you as an individual is actually quite small. We just can't extrapolate the community risk to the personal risk and assume that because the community risk is large, the personal risk is also large. So finding trusted sources of information on issues like this is really important. So look to places like the World Health Organization or your healthcare provider. 
You can look at what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is doing as kind of an advisory measure, but I will say in general that the American government has not been good at detecting and understanding and reducing risks associated with all kinds of public health threats over the years. And they tend to be more reactionary than proactive. So I personally don't necessarily trust that I'm getting all the information I need in a timely manner from them. You can also do a simple mental risk analysis and ask yourself if you know of anyone who's been infected with the virus and if you've been in contact with them. If you have, there's definitely more of a reason to worry than if you haven't. Thirdly, what are the steps that you can reasonably take to prevent the spread of the virus? Well, these are fairly simple. Regular effective hand washing for 20 seconds, not touching your face, staying away from someone who might be infected. And that's where the advice to maintain social distance comes into play. And most of what I'm reading says to stay around six feet or two meters from other people when you're out. There's probably not a lot of point in wearing a face mask unless it's a very high quality one and you're trained in how to use it and you're disciplined in using it. I was at the pharmacy at the hospital the other day picking up some medicine for poison oak and I can't tell you how many people I saw with masks pushed down around their chins. Masks are actually mostly designed to keep nasty stuff in rather than out. So they're designed for sick people to wear so they don't get other people sick, not for healthy people to wear to keep other people's germs out. And there are mask shortages as well at the moment, so it's best to save those for people who are on the front lines dealing with real exposure risk. So for those of you who are in these situations where you do genuinely have an elevated risk of exposure, my, my heart really goes out to you. Um, one of the things that seems to happen when we experience symptoms related to anxiety is that we feel alone and like nobody else can possibly understand. But since there are hundreds of thousands experiencing this right now, it's highly likely there are very many people who do understand how you're feeling, not only about the exposure, but about the fact that this is happening in a situation that you can't get out of. And so one thing you might try is to create a virtual social community for people who are at an increased exposure risk, maybe using a phone or a video conferencing tool so you don't actually have to be together in the same room. And I'm going to put a link in the references to an article about video conferencing providers who are offering free services right now. And so, okay, so what does this look like? It could be something as simple as you and a colleague sending out an email to everyone in your work environment saying you're going to be on the line at a certain time. And if nobody else shows up, then you'll have one other person that you can talk with. And you may even just find that helpful, but you'll probably find, I'm guessing, that many others have been feeling a need for connection like this, but just didn't know how to make it happen. When we're anxious, it's possible that understanding rationally that our actual risk of exposure is fairly low if we have access to adequate protective equipment. Um, but you also need to address the emotional aspect as well, and which seeks reassurance and solidarity and empathy. So by going at this from both sides, the rational and the emotional sides, you'll stand the best chance of making, this through, making it through this with your sanity intact. And so in the free workshop, we'll talk more deeply about some other tools that you can use to create space for yourself when you feel triggered by anxiety about this or other things that are related to being around your kids for so much time. And so you can choose a different response, as well as resources to help you have conversations about your fears with your colleagues and your partner that invite them to help you and allow you to offer your support to them. We'll also talk about a concept from Buddhism that I found incredibly helpful in my own life. It's called grasping. And that's the idea that we tend to get attached to certain outcomes, like keeping our family safe. That, I mean, yes, we can, do, we can obviously take these preventive measures, but in reality, we can't control that outcome. 
like we wish we could. So taking steps to stop grasping, even as we continue to take all the necessary precautions like hand washing and social distance, can go an enormously long way towards releasing the grip that anxiety has over us. This is really powerful work and I'm going to be really excited to share it with you in the workshop. Okay, so that was a lot on anxiety specifically related to the virus. And for those of us who aren't feeling especially anxious about our risk of exposure, there's still the anxiety of knowing that while we love our children, we really do better when we spend a significant chunk of the day apart from them. Even for those of you who have chosen to be stay-at-home parents, getting out of the house and socializing, both with other children and other parents, has probably provided a big part of the resources that you use to feel connected and have a purpose beyond that of raising your children. And with that rug pulled out from under you, you too may also feel very isolated. One thing I really want to underscore here is that I don't think you need a minute-by-minute -minute schedule that tries to replicate the kind of schedule your, school, your child has at school. And when we talk about children more in a minute, I'll also make the case that keeping up on schoolwork is a pretty low priority right now. But I do think that if your children have been in a very structured environment and will probably be going back to a very structured environment in a few weeks, then there's a strong case for maintaining some semblance of a daily routine. A routine is different from a schedule in that a schedule says exactly what you'll be doing and when, while a routine is more of a loose structure that you use to guide you. If neither you nor your child thrives on routine or structure, and you're both welcoming these unstructured days with wide open arms, then I'd say go for it and run with that and enjoy it while you can. But if your children are bouncing off the walls, then you may find that rather than constraining you, a routine actually gives you space to feel as though you know what's coming next and removes the stress of what can seem to be constant decision-making about what to do next. So the free workshop that I'm running doesn't start until March 23rd. So when you sign up for it, I'll immediately send you a free downloadable sample routine that you can use or modify to guide your activities in the intervening days. It does have times on it, like a schedule, but these are just a suggestion. It's designed on the assumption that there are two parents at home who both need to put in at least a half day of remote work. So it allows for one parent monitoring the children and some activities in the morning and then switching off after a family lunch. If you're parenting solo, then you might want to work with neighbors or friends on some kind of switching off arrangement. Yes, we are trying to limit social contact here, so I wouldn't advise rotating a different set of people in and out of the house every day. But if you're working with just one or two other families who are also trying to limit their outside contact, then you're probably not greatly increasing your exposure risk. So do go ahead and download that sample routine by entering your name and email address at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash coronavirus. Okay, so we've talked quite a bit about how the coronavirus may be affecting you, so now let's shift gears a bit and talk about how it may be affecting your children. And I'm just going to take a sip of water here. <laughs> and this, this episode's been going fairly well so far, and I actually think I might not even need to edit it. So if you can <laughs> put up with a sip of water for a second, I'm going to be able to get this episode out to you faster. All right. So you may well find that younger children don't seem to be particularly worried about the virus at all, possibly partly because they don't really have a full understanding of what it is or how it could affect them. But there are some children who may be quite worried or even anxious, particularly if they're a bit older and they've been talking about it with their friends and maybe their information sources aren't the most rigorous either. Or if they're younger and they're the kind of child who does thrive on routine and certainty and having that rug pulled out makes them feel very unstable. And in addition, if you're feeling worried or anxious, then they may be picking up on this as well. So if your child does seem worried, you can try asking them what they're worried about if they haven't already told you. And they may not be able to put it into words, but if they can, as with adults, the key thing to do is to empathize. 
as parents, we can be quick to rush in with our rationalizations and explanations of how we're probably not going to get sick. And even if we do, we're probably going to be fine. But as you know yourself, this doesn't necessarily help. So to reiterate, the first step is to empathize. And so how do we do this? We can do this through physical touch, like hugs and kisses, which can be just as powerful as the things that we say. We can also say, I hear that you're really worried about that. You must feel very scared. And just as a side note, I would really try and use this language about feeling scared rather than being scared, as this helps our children to understand that feelings come and go rather than being something that's inherent to us and therefore won't change. And then after you've sat with them for a while and empathized, you can talk about some of the information to help them cognitively understand that the risk is low and they'll probably be fine. But do always lead with the empathy. If I think about the times when I've been scared or worried about something and I think about what helps me, I firstly want to know the person that I'm hearing, the person I'm telling hears me and sees me and accepts me for who I am. And once I'm sure that piece is in place, then I can start to receive information about cognitively reevaluating the risk, but not before. So this leads us nicely into what we should tell children about the virus. And I think parents who are asking about this already see that this information needs to be differentiated by the child's age and maturity, but they aren't quite sure where to go with it from there. And so rather than give you a, you know, when your child is this old, you should tell them this kind of approach, I think that a tool that can be more helpful to us is something I learned about in the episode Talk Sex Today, where we talked with sex educator Salima Noon. And her advice to parents is that whenever their child comes to them with a question about sex, the parent's first response should be, oh, why did you want to know? And not only does this buy you a few seconds to think, <laughs> which can be really helpful, it also helps you to understand what's really going on behind the question and whether your child is interested or confused or worried or something else. And that allows you to tailor your response. And if you still feel as though you just can't answer the question in that moment, it's totally fine to say, I'm so glad you asked that question. I need to I need a bit of time to think about the right way to give you the best answer. Can we talk about it? And then you can name a specific point in the day when you'll come back to it, like after dinner. And then you do actually need to come back and talk about it later. Don't just use it as a tactic to get out of the conversation. And whenever you do end up having that conversation, just try to answer the child's question fairly narrowly. So we parents often think that we would want to have more information rather than less, so our children must prefer this too. But children are often the opposite. So if they want to know why daycare is closed, you could say something like, there's an illness called coronavirus that you can catch by being close to people who already have it. So even though we don't know anyone who has it, school is closing to make sure that children stay safe. And then if they ask you what coronavirus is, you can give them a bit more information about that. So you're always using their question as the departure point for giving them information rather than telling them things they haven't asked about, which should help to assuage their worries without giving them new things to worry about. And you may also need to em emphasize the importance of hand washing and teach them to count to 20 while they're doing it and explain that we can't see our friends as much as we'd like to to try and keep everyone healthy. So for older children who do prefer to have more information and who are curious, this could actually be an ideal uh, topic for what I call a learning exploration, which is where you take the child's question as a jumping off point for a real exploration of the topic, going as deeply into it as they would like to using resources like online books, which are still available even when libraries are closed as they are here now in Berkeley, and YouTube videos as well. 
if we weren't so constrained, we'd use all kinds of community-based resources as well. But right now, we're making the best of what we have. And there's still an enormous amount of information available to help children learn about what truly interests them, which is learning that's far more likely to stick with them than doing rote tasks on a worksheet. Okay, so this is leading us to some of the issues that are going to come up related to your children actually being out of school. And one of the first things you might be worried about is whether they're going to fall behind academically. And my slightly facetious answer to this is that I don't think your child's going to fall behind academically because everyone else's child is out of school too. And even on the tables that you may have seen comparing children's academic performance across countries, no one country is probably going to fall behind because of this time off because all the other countries are dealing with the virus too. And listeners who have been with me for a while know that while I'm in awe of the many dedicated teachers who are out there supporting our children, I'm beyond frustrated at the system that they are forced to work within in which curriculum is set by bureaucrats in distance conference rooms and standardized testing is seen as an adequate assessment of what a person knows and where learning also has to be standardized to make sure performance on the standardized test is accurate. So the learning can have very little relevance to the child's real life interests and concerns. So I hope I can encourage you not to worry about academics for right now. If your school has provided an academic packet to work through and that's a part of your routine that you and your child find helpful, then it certainly won't help them, it won't hurt them to do it. But what I'm hearing from teachers is that the only reason they're putting these packets together is because parents are terrified of having no structure in their days. And so academic assignments are one way to provide that structure. And instead, I want to try and encourage you to see this time from a different perspective. In my family, at least, there are always so many projects that we wish we could do if we had the time. Things like gardening, or washing the car, and baking, and sewing new curtains for the living room, or clothes for our children's toys. There never seems to be enough time in the day for, the, to, for us to read all the books that our children want us to read to them, or snuggle with them as much as they want to be snuggled. We feel so much pressure to stay on schedule and go places and do things. In a way, we're now being called on to drop all of that. We're being shown what's close to us at home and what's important to us. And we're being encouraged to spend time with that. I was talking with Dr. Laura Foran yesterday morning. She's been a guest on the show a couple times and she co-teaches a unit of my parenting membership with me. And she was saying how she thinks the coronavirus is going to define the memories of this generation of children. And I think we both agree that yes, it can define their perceptions of risk and health and staying safe. But I'm also reminded of a story that I read somewhere a long time ago, and I don't remember where now, but it was about a woman whose father had been laid off from work when she was very young. And she said that she somehow knew that money wasn't as plentiful as it had been previously, and that was difficult. But what she really remembered was that her dad was around and they would work together to cook dinner, and because he was there, he was embedded in her life in a way that he couldn't have been if he was working a traditional job. And from that perspective, she really saw that time as a gift. So to reiterate on this, if you and your child do enjoy traditional academic work and you find the routine of it helpful, then please go ahead and do it. But do you really want to spend the next six weeks feeling like you're pulling teeth every single day to get your child to spell 10 words that they don't care about? Or do you want them to look back on this period with such a sense of warmth at all the things that you were able to do together and how it enabled you to be more connected? 
And at this point I can hear you saying, all right, Jen, I'm on board with the no academics, but this is real life here. <laughs> I still have to work. What the heck am I supposed to do? And I acknowledge that, yes, this is not the easiest time. So here are some things that might help. Firstly, the routine that we've discussed. If we've been functioning in a routine for a long time, the endless process of making decisions about what to do next can feel very overwhelming. And at that point, the easiest thing to do can just be to reach for the iPad. And that's why having some sense of what's coming next can keep you moving through the day, which means you don't slide into screen time without intentionally doing it. Secondly, it can be hard to explain to children why mama or daddy gets to spend half the day on their screens while the children are barely allowed to have any time on it at all. If this is an issue in your family, then I'd suggest that the working parent goes to another room and closes the door rather than being somewhere where the children can see you on your screen for hours at a time. And then the final thing on screens is that I really believe it's okay to relax a bit around screen time right now if that fits with your philosophy on raising children because I know some of you are not using screens at all and of course that's totally fine too if that's how you prefer to do it. I've done a couple of podcast episodes on screen time and the broad brush conclusions that I can draw from the studies I've looked at from these is that yes, endless hours on screens isn't great for our children's brains or bodies. While the American Academy of Pediatrics does recommend no screen time for children under 18 months and one hour a day of high quality programming for age, children ages two to five, there is really no actual evidence that says one hour a day is some kind of magic number and that if you exceed that number, damage is gonna to result to your child. And so to put that in context, the guideline is more like the scientists saying, Based on the available evidence, which is inconclusive, here's the best attempt we can make at saying what we think most likely won't harm most children. And of course, in addition to making sure they're watching high quality programming, parents are supposed to sit with their child while they're watching their show and discuss it with them. <laughs> of course, these guidelines were developed for a world where we aren't being asked not to be close to other people, which for many people means spending a lot of time at home. And nobody, me included, can't say for sure what will or won't harm an individual child. But I am fairly confident that a couple of hours of screen time on most days over the coming weeks is not going to result in lasting damage to your child as long as your child has not been diagnosed with some kind of speech delay or other condition for which you've been specifically advised by a professional to minimize their screen usage. But again, the key thing about having a routine is that it keeps you moving through your day without having to make these constant decisions that can lead you to slip into using screen time as a default. And that may also reduce your child's feeling like they want or need to nag you for more screen time, which benefits your sanity as well. Now, when I posted a call for questions on what people wanted to know about coronavirus and how it affects their families in the free Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group, Quite a lot of people responded with questions around socialization. So they're worried about loneliness, particularly among extroverted children, and that the loss of interaction with their peers is going to cause their child some kind of harm. They're wondering what to do instead of play dates that might be a traditional fallback in more normal situations when daycare and schools closed. So let's take a look at those concerns. We're an inherently social species, and it's definitely possible that we're all going to feel a bit lonely at some point in the next few weeks with the possible exception of highly introverted me and perhaps my daughter Karis as well, who would be quite happy spending here to eternity in the house wearing pajamas, sorting out her Legos by type into plastic containers. But I wouldn't necessarily be particularly worried about the impacts on a child of spending a few weeks apart from their peers. 
yes, this is a sensitive time in a child's development when they're young. And if it was a single child being absent from a tightly integrated group from a long period of time, then I would expect they might find it hard to reintegrate with the group once they returned. But all of the child's peers are in the same boat too, so nobody's getting left behind. Yes, we know that prolonged social isolation over a long period of time is very damaging to the brain, but your child is safe in a loving environment with you, not totally isolated. As far as I'm aware and as far as I could find, there's no specific research on the effects of a short-term period of isolation from peers and young children. But everything I can gather from the thousands of academic papers I've read on child development tells me that while they might struggle for a few days to get back into the routine of daycare or school, in the long term, this is not going to be something that causes harm as long as they are in a loving environment at home. And just to reframe this a bit, I think we also don't need to see this as a period of total isolation from peers if we get creative in terms of how we think about interaction. And we're fortunate that modern technology is going to be a huge help to us in a way that it couldn't have been even a decade ago. So the teachers at Karis's preschool are going to be at school cleaning over the next week. And at a set time each morning, they're going to start a video call. So all the children who want to can call in and see the teachers and read a story and have their normal circle time together. After that first week when the teachers won't be available anymore, this could still be a really great part of the daily routine to keep up, maybe with a different parent hosting it each day, so all the other parents can have half an hour of downtime while that's going on. And even the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't count screen time while the child is interacting with other people through the screen, so you aren't counting against your allowance on that either. Screen time can be an important social source of social relationships for you as well, as long as you don't look up two hours after you idly pick up your phone and wonder why you're still scrolling Facebook with no memory of what you've been looking at. So if you're in supportive parenting groups, sharing ideas and empathizing and gathering strength for the next day, then I'd absolutely consider that to be self-care work. Also take time to check in with friends via phone or video chat and keep up those connections as well. You could imagine setting up their kids and your kids in, with a computer in your living rooms to video chat with each other while you retreat to a bedroom and have your own conversation at the same time. And I don't think we have to completely rule out in-person interactions either, or going outside for that matter. The key is to try and keep some distance between people, so riding bikes would be a fantastic activity that allows you to get outside, move around and see people without getting close enough to pose a risk. And some parents are asking me about playgrounds, and I think this is a bit more of a gray zone. So here's what I know about it. Flu viruses, of which coronaviruses are kind of flu, can remain active on hard surfaces for two to three days if they're undisturbed. We also know that the sun is actually a potent viricide, which means it kills viruses. And I found a really helpful paper that looks at the amount of time it takes at different latitudes for the sun to kill the flu virus on surfaces outside. Based on this data, if you're living, conveniently enough, in San Francisco, <laughs> or at any latitude south of San Francisco right now, as we approach the spring equinox in the Northern Hemisphere, the sun is probably going to kill around 90% of any flu virus present on hard surfaces in one day, assuming it's a fully sunny day and the surface has to be exposed to the sun and not underneath a play structure or something. So the paper only provides the virucidal potential at the solstices and the equinoxes, but my extrapolation from the data is that you'd have to wait until sometime in late April before you hit that 90% threshold in Seattle, and later than that at latitudes in Canada and Northern Europe. And those of you in the Southern Hemisphere can check the latitudes of those cities against your own latitude in the other direction and figure it out from there. 
So what I'm taking from this is that if the playground hasn't been used very much and it's sunny outside, and if you're feeling extra cautious, you could take some disinfectant with you and give some things a wipe down, and yours is the only family there, then playgrounds don't have to be totally off limits. And this actually might be especially useful for parents of children who are younger than two, who tend not to play directly together anyway, and might be quite content to be six feet apart from each other while the parents get some much needed connection time. But of course, if you see a playground with lots of children running around, then you're not going to be able to keep an adequate space between people, so that's probably a no-go situation. There was also a piece in The Atlantic recently which interviewed several experts on social distancing and the situations the experts were being asked about were dating and going to bars, which are more applicable to adults than children. But the one that came closest to being relevant to us and things like playdate situations was whether it's okay to have a small group of friends over at your house for a dinner party or a board game night. So Dr. Crystal Watson, who's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, said she thought that small gatherings are probably okay as long as no one has respiratory symptoms. Dr. Alba Coe, who's chair of the epidemiology department at the Yale School of Public Health, didn't come out right and say a game night was a bad idea as long as you can sit somewhat far apart, but he observed there's a risk of transmission through game pieces and doorknobs and bathroom faucets that lots of people touch. And Dr. Carolyn Canusio, I hope I'm saying that right, who's the Director of Research at the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, was the most conservative of, of the three, saying that all social interactions should be limited, with the exception that if two households are in strict agreement that they're going to reduce all outside contact and only socialize together to support one another, then the social and mental health advantages could outweigh the small increase in virus transmission risk. So if you absolutely need or your child needs to have someone contact with someone outside of your immediate family, but you still want to be conservative, I would try and pick someone that your child could potentially spend a lot of time with in the coming weeks and not get bored and agree with that family that you're each other's support system and that you will each minimize outside engagement beyond your families. And the more successful you are reducing that outside engagement, I think the more lax you can be about maintaining social distance between the members of those families, in just the same way that we aren't maintaining distance between people living in the same household for as long as none of them are sick. And before we leave outdoor time totally behind, <laughs> I'd also like to say that for many of us, this is a great time to be outside. If you're somewhere snowy, put on some warm clothes and go out and play. If it's raining, like it is here in the California Bay Area, put on some waders, explore a creek, or turn over some logs and look for salamanders. If it's sunny, go for a hike. You could try geocaching, which is like a treasure hunt using an app on your phone. And Karis absolutely loves to see what treasures the next cache is going to hold. But just watch out for poison oak, because I'm pretty sure that's where I got mine last weekend. I'll put a link to geocaching, uh, the website, where you can find out more information on that in the references. Animal trekking is actually also a lot of fun. There are books and apps that provide a lot of information, and then you can head out somewhere where there aren't a lot of people around, which should be easier now everyone's indoors, and look for tracks in mud or sand or snow. And you can actually tell a lot about what kind of animal it was and what it was doing just by studying its tracks. You can start a nature journal, so keep track of the weather and the changes in plants that are coming as spring sets in. I'll put a link in the references to some great videos on basic drawing techniques that could actually have you doing drawings of flowers and things you find in nature that you might have thought were completely beyond your capability. And you can bring art supplies for the kids too and let them draw or paint whatever they like. You can also just have unstructured time, lie in the grass and look at the leaves on the trees moving overhead or the clouds, roll around in the grass, make snow and sand angels. 
If we can keep the maximum number of people healthy by doing these things in our small family units and also create the kind of memories that our children are going to look back on as defining moments in their lives, then I think we'll have weathered this challenge about as well as we can ourselves. And before we leave this episode behind, I also want to encourage you, if you are relatively unimpacted by the effects of the virus right now, that you offer help to others who might be in a less fortunate situation. So you might have elderly neighbors who are feeling extremely isolated because maybe they don't know how to use video conferencing software, so they can't reach out to their families. If they have underlying medical conditions, they might not have been able to leave the house even to get food. The homeless people sitting outside the grocery store probably don't have access to water, so if you have a spare bottle of hand sanitizer, you might consider giving it away and washing your own hands with soap and water instead. Call your local food pantry and see what they need. Listener Brian Stout, who co-interviewed Dr. Carol Gilligan with me on the topic of patriarchy and whose follow-up interview was supposed to be published today instead of this episode, wrote a blog post recently, and I'll put a link to that in the references too, and he was gathering some thinking on how community is going to be the key to surviving through the virus's rampage and thriving after it. And so Brian quotes British journalist Dr. Nafid Ahmed, let me say that again, Dr. Nafiz Ahmed's recent article in Medium, And uh, Dr. Ahmed said, the coronavirus will strain social, economic, and political systems to the brink. Getting through coronavirus will be an exercise not just in building societal resilience, but relearning the values of cooperation, compassion, generosity, and kindness, and building systems which institutionalize these values. Brian goes on to quote Dr. Frank Snowden, Professor Emeritus of History and the History of Medicine at Yale, in an interview in The New Yorker, who has written... Epidemic diseases are not random events that afflict societies capriciously and without warning. On the contrary, every society produces its own specific vulnerabilities. To study them is to understand that society's structure, its standard of living, and its political priorities. And in that New Yorker interview itself, he said, Epidemics are a category of disease that seem to hold up the mirror to human beings as to who we really are. They show the moral relationships we have toward each other as people. There has, to be, there has to be an absolutely fundamental change in our mindset. We have to think that we have to work together as a human species to be organized to care for one another, to realize that the health of the most vulnerable people among us is a determining factor for the health of all of us. And if we aren't prepared to do that, we'll never, ever be prepared to confront these devastating challenges to our humanity. Brian himself concludes, We face a moment of reckoning. This is who we are. Is this who we want to be? And then I'll add, deciding this as a a society requires that we decide this for ourselves. What do you want to be in the society? And what will you do as a result of that decision? Another thing you can do with your kids while, while you're stuck at home is learn how to cook some new vegetarian dishes. Because long after the craziness of coronavirus is just a distant memory, climate change, of which things like meat consumption is a huge contributor, will still be here with us. In some ways, our reaction to coronavirus makes me sad because we're taking all these precautionary measures to make sure that we don't get sick. The virus doesn't discriminate who it affects. So we, in even, even in our society, in, in developed, so-called developed countries, enact drastic measures to stop it. But the effects of climate change are discriminatory. We in the West haven't been willing to do much about it because it doesn't affect us personally in the same way that the virus does. 
When it gets hot, we just turn on the air conditioning. When sea levels rise, we can just pay to have the water pumped out of our streets when, during the king tides. We can call our insurance company when our house is burned down by wildfire. We don't feel the pain of the effects of climate change in the same way that we do the effects of coronavirus. But there are billions of people around the world who are feeling those effects right now, whose houses and entire towns are already permanently flooded, but they keep living there because they have nowhere else to go. And because we see those people as different from us, we think, well, why should I do anything differently? Why should I stop eating meat? Why should I drive less? So my ultimate hope is that each and every one of us will seize this opportunity to see how we personally fit into this huge global system and what we want our role to be in that and what change needs to happen for each of us to make a positive contribution to, to that and to take personal steps and enact policies that make that vision happen. I do hope this episode has left you with a sense of calm as well as optimism. We can get through this. We will get through this. But if you need a little extra help getting through this, then go over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash coronavirus, enter your name and email address, and I'll send that sample daily routine right over to you. And together we'll walk through the free one-week workshop starting on March 23rd to bring down your stress level, keep the kids busy, and also support them in learning things they're really interested in to make the most of this time. You'll get daily emails and live videos where you can interact with me, or you can watch them later if you can't make a set time, and so much support and encouragement from all the other parents in the same boat. I'm sending warm, remote hugs to each and every one of you from a distance of much greater than six feet. I still hope you can feel them, and I also hope I get to meet you in the workshop as well.